Hello and welcome to episode five of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring. Today we take a break from our usual program to bring you a public service announcement about goons. I realize that we haven't really addressed goons in our first four episodes, but they are real and they are out there, just waiting to try to stop a reporter from doing his or her job. Yes, I'm talking about hired thugs. Believe me, this is a thing, especially in China. I probably only encountered real goons once on a reporting trip to northeastern China, but our next guest is a real aficionado at dealing with them and still getting the big story. Today we'll be talking to Joe Campbell, a reporter for Reuters Video News. Joe and I were co-workers in Beijing from about 2014 to 2017. Joe provides a window into the side of the business we haven't talked about yet. Thus far, we've been talking mostly about text reporting. But shooting video is a whole different deal from text. You can't hide your big-ass camera when you rock up to some small town in China. It's conspicuous. By the same token, you need to be able to convince someone to speak on camera or you don't have a story. No cowering in the office relying on the phone, and anonymous sources just don't work quite the same way. So deal with goons he must. Joe's start in Indiana might seem as vanilla as it gets, but stick with it because this is one of the most colorful interviews I've done yet. We talk about sketchy Mongolian border crossings, people living in caves, and really getting inside a dog cloning business. We repeat the phrase cloned juice several times. I'll leave you to discover what that means. Joe has certainly done very serious stories, but we steer toward more of his features. These are really delightful stories. Check them out in the links on our show page. And of course, stick around for the lightning round of questions at the end. Just one announcement up top. I see people are listening. I get the download numbers, but no one wants to be just a statistic. It would be great to hear more from you. Please leave a review or just give a star rating real quick in whatever app you use or tweet at me at at foreign pod or hell. If you're shy, just drop me an email at jake.spring at gmail.com and let me know what you think. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Joe Campbell. So, well, thanks. Thanks for coming on the podcast, first of all. For thanks for having me. Especially with the time difference. It's about, yeah, 9.30 in the morning here. Let's uh, just set the scene a little bit. If you can tell me where you are, what time it is, what kind of work day or work week you've ha- you're coming off of. Um, all right. Well, I'm in lovely Beijing, China, the northern capital. It's about 8.36 p.m. right now. And actually, because I worked two days uh, chasing around the U.S.-China uh, delegation uh, trade talks over uh, the recent uh, May Day holiday, I did not work today. I was on a, a comp day. So actually, I went to Tianjin for a few days to play some amateur baseball and kind of an amateur league thing. And I just got back to Beijing this afternoon. So... <laughs> Anyway, I'm about to have a, a work week ahead that uh, looks a little bit sleepy for now in terms of uh, if you're speaking from a, a television-oriented perspective, but um, I'm filming a, a couple of features, and maybe if things stay just as, as low-key as they are at the moment, um, I will continue to do so. And how, how was uh, Chasing Leaders over the holiday, the May 1st holiday, right? Um, it, was, did you... it was a dream come true. <laughs> Did they make any news or was it mostly just no payoff? Oh, it's always no payoff when you're doing, I was mostly doing the pool coverage. And whenever there is a leader's visit in China and especially uh, someone from the Trump administration comes and and meets with any Chinese leaders, um, there really is almost no news produced. It's usually just a handshake and, and a smile, if any. So... Uh, it was about the same for this time as well. You know, we had people stationed out at the hotel where the uh, U.S. delegation was staying. And, you know, occasionally they would come back and said that they had a great a great lunch with their counterparts or a great working dinner. But <laughs> if you've seen the recent news, it, I guess it didn't work out too well. This was uh, talks over the trade war, right? To come yeah. here and deal with yeah, minutiae yeah. in town and everything like that. But for for my duty, it was just mostly covering handshakes and family photos and and that kind of fluff. <laughs> so uh, yeah, let's uh, let's now let's roll back the clock and find out the roots of Joe Campbell. So uh, let let's start way back at the beginning. Uh, where were you born? Oh wow, uh, that's far back. I was born in Crawfordsville, Indiana. Um, it's a small town of about 11,000 people. We have an all-males college where my father used to teach, Wabash, and it's one of the only two remaining all-males schools or colleges in, in the U.S. So oh, wow. there you go. 
What did he teach? He taught um, English literature and linguistics, but he was sort of a medievalist, I guess. Yeah. Huh. Did he seek out an all-male college on purpose, or was just a coincidence? Oh, wow. This is... This is almost primordial <laughs> in terms of my, my roots. He, uh, I think after he, he actually did his PhD in Indiana University. And after that, he got married right away and ended up, I think, on a tenure track job in California. But his, his wife of the time wanted to go back to her family in Indiana. So he took the first job that he could find, which was apparently at an old male school in Crawfordsville, Indiana. <laughs> so yeah, he went from small town California to small town Indiana. And I'm guessing this this marriage that he moved for is not not where you came from. That, that's not where I came from. No. <laughs> so what did what did your mom do? What was she doing in Crawford, Indiana? Crawfordsville. Well, actually, Crawfordsville. my dad my dad was I think studying at Indiana University during the summers and taking sort of some fellowship there. And I think my mom was studying opera and she was a music major. She was getting her master's in music. And I think they were both late to class and they met each other. And there you go. Somehow she ended up in Crawfordsville, Indiana, but we don't live there anymore. We moved when I was in college to a bigger oh, okay. city nearby. What was it like for you growing up in Crawfordsville? Was it idyllic pastoral? It was pretty nice, actually. I mean, it was a slow, redneck, small town, to be honest. I'm trying to find a, a nicer terminology for it, but for, unfortunately, I think that's the first that comes right off my tongue. I mean, it really was a, a nice place to grow up. It was safe. I was in every kind of sport imaginable, I think, until high school when I got injured with ten case of tendonitis and swimming. But it was a nice, slow place full of green pastures and flat land as far as the eye can see. And yeah, it's kind of the opposite of a big, messy uh, Northeast Asian city. <laughs> Where you are now, yeah. 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 Growing up there was a little bit boring, but then I, I think after a few years here, I really started to admire it. Did you realize how boring it was back then? Oh, yes. Yes. There was more to life. And uh, so that that makes a ton of sense that you then traded the green, not rolling, completely flat pastures of Indiana for the, the green pastures of Ohio and went to <laughs> you went to Oberlin, right? Yes, yes. And that was also another place as flat with land as flat as and and as far as the eye could see. <laughs> Why go there? Well, why Oberlin? Well, I knew I wanted to go to a small liberal arts school, and I knew someone who went there, actually, in my high school in Crawfordsville, and I thought uh, she was super cool, and I'd looked into a lot of uh, a few of the programs there at the university, the uh, history and East Asian studies department, I think I was most interested in, and, you know, I took a little tour of it and loved it, so I ended up applying uh, only to Oberlin, actually. I just went on... Oh, um, wow. Yeah, it was my, yeah, I went on the early decision and uh, yeah, there you go. Cool. Wow. And and w one thing I skipped over, but it might be interesting. I realized I forgot to ask about it all, but just the whole Hungarian connection. And I don't know if there's a, a way to ask about that, because I feel like that sets up a million languages you speak. Because <laughs> uh, I, I barely speak any of, of Hungarian at all, but my... Um, Mom's side is is mostly Hungarian, and her father. One one of the reasons, actually, why I was interested in being a journalist is because her father was a journalist. And oh wow, uh, yeah, I mean, he wrote originally for the AP in you New York hungry? City. Oh wow, yeah, yeah, New York City actually at one point. He eventually ended up writing for an agricultural publication, I think, decades later. Yeah, he had, there were a lot of interesting stories about him because he was educated in, actually in the Midwest. Okay. So yeah. he was uh, he was the first uh, of your yeah in a way first immigrant yeah did you know him did uh, I mean or it's just you heard about I had just heard the stories I had just heard about his journalism exploits because he actually passed away in 1980 okay. yeah so almost a decade before I was born but he lived on as a legend Alex and when Goldberger. it was Alex Goldberger. 
And when so when was the first time journalism kind of came on your radar? Was it in college or were you already dabbling in it in high school? Or I think I was always involved whenever there was a school newspaper type activity, even in elementary school all the way through. You know, I, I mean, we would always I was part of the student council and we published like a, you know, a sort of a, a mini newspaper or journal for things happening around, you know, silly little th- uh, things happening around our school. And then uh, middle school, I think there was a little mini a school newspaper, and then eventually in in high school, I was involved in our school newspaper as well. Three of my four years there, and in college, I think just for two years, I wrote, but not that much for the Oberlin Review, the uh, Oberlin College newspaper. Okay, so it was always kind of something you were doing, even if it wasn't what you were focused on. Um, right, I was just interested in in dabbling in it. I knew that I really liked journalism. You know, I I just wanted to try it out from that perspective. And I'd grown up in a small town, and most of what I was reporting on was small town politics. And I think with Oberlin Review, I at least got a chance to go cover um, elections across Ohio and and going to these bizarre little small towns I never knew existed and looking at gubernatorial debates and or witnessing (laughs) them and everything like that. That was quite interesting. That's cool that they sent people to cover that sort of stuff. I I mean, we definitely wrote a bit about local elections, but I don't think we got much outside of Evanston, Illinois, where Northwestern was. Certainly not to other cities. Well, I think at those events, because they wouldn't even come to Oberlin, you know, they would come to uh, the state capitol or places like right right nearby that as well. And, and sometimes it was our only chance to really interview the candidates and stuff like that. Got to gotta keep the Oberlin student body informed. Yeah, <laughs> they really care. Interesting. So, so what did you study yeah. in college? I studied East Asian studies and uh, I minored in history and politics. You said you looked at the departments. Did you go in thinking you would study that or did it kind of just evolve over the four years or... I think I went in knowing I would study history and, and East Asian studies, and I kind of dabbled in a lot. I did a lot of Russian-related stuff, and I don't think I had enough credits for a major. But I went in knowing that I was history, and those I was interested in those two. And eventually, I ended up studying politics as well, and that just kind of crossed over in, ter- in terms of classes and content and borders, and it kind of just fit into place. You know, I, to this day, I still think about a lot of the readings and sort of projects that we had to carry out and research in a lot of those classes. It's really quite helpful, I think, being a reporter in a developing country, and especially in China. Knowing the history, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, another thing about me also is that I got a chance to study in Japan at one time when I was a high school student, at first with my parents being on sabbatical. Yeah, that was, you know, a life-changing opportunity because I was, you know, not only leaving my small town, but going to a completely alien culture and country, and I ended up learning the language as fast as I could and and kind of kept it up to this day. It's not as good as it used to be, but I think that was a, uh, in terms of like the path of studies and and interests, I think that was quite life-changing at the at a time like that, formative years, high school. That makes sense, because otherwise it is kind of like, how is East Asia even on your radar living in Indiana? But uh, if you got to study there for a year, where where were you in Japan? And your parents were working there for a year? Or what? how did that? Tokyo. Yeah, I was in Tokyo. My parents were sort of on an exchange, exchange sort of teachers, I think. And, and they're, um, mainly my dad was, I think he was director of an international students kind of program there for a year with the association of colleges that his college belonged to. Okay. Yeah. And you, uh, do you have brothers and sisters? I forget. Yes, I have a little brother. He's five years younger than me, and I have a half-sister who's 15 years older than me. So it wasn't just you over in Japan. Your brother no, was there, too. He was there, too, and then I stayed on an extra year. Oh, really? So wow. I was quite lucky. Yeah. Two years. Huh. And th- this was what, when you were 16 to 18? or 16 to 17. Gotcha. Okay. So you go to university, study Chinese. You start taking Chinese then? Is that right? Yeah. My advisor at the time was a Chinese teacher and uh, in the East Asian Studies Department. And uh, I really wanted to study it. I was already interested in China. And I had an experience. I had an opportunity to travel there with my mom in 2006, my last year in Japan. And then Japan was, a, I mean, it was an interesting place. And I was interested in 
culture and language, but it was it was it was kind of a stagnant society. I mean, it still is in some ways, and it's not that particularly interesting of a place to be based as a reporter. I mean, China, China was literally everything was changing overnight. Massive cities that you've never ever heard of were industrializing within you know what what would probably be decades, the a period of decades in other parts of the Western world for city, cities with even half the the population standards that they have here. Right. Yeah. Were you already thinking in terms uh, as a journalist at that point, or a bit? Was, yeah, a bit. Okay. I think it was sort of in the back of my mind, like that's oh, something that I'd love to do. I, I like to do documentaries as well. I did um, a couple of them during college. One of them being about um, used bookstores and printing or publishing industry in Japan that I got a few grants for. Went there over a, a couple of about a month actually. Was able to do about a half hour long feature. That was that was an interesting experience. I think because I you know I hadn't had any background in documentary and I hadn't taken any formal classes over it, but I went and filmed that and sort of self-studied and had a few uh, film department uh, professors help me out with, with the project and view it and everything like that. Cool. Do you still have it? Did you show it anywhere? I, I still have it. I don't think it's fit for public consumption, but yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, so you know some Japanese, You're you get into Chinese because you took a trip there. Russian, where does that come from and why I mean normally most people stop at one very difficult language what uh, drove you to do that um well I was just uh, historically speaking I was taking a bunch of Russian history related classes and I just was fascinated with the I had always been fascinated with the literature and, and history of, and it's so epic how could you not you know I think it just could kind of fit in there with with Chinese as well if I was studying modern history I only took about two years of it and it was a very difficult language. Sure. And I've traveled to Russia a few times as well and, and across the former Soviet Union. Actually, when I first came here to China, I wasn't sure what my next step would be. Um, I came here with on a fellowship in 2012. I've run between Oberlin and, and Beijing Normal University. And during that time, you know, the Chinese universities had this massive gap of holiday in the winter, which is Chinese New Year, and you get like basically three months off. And so you have three months really with nothing else to do unless you want to stay around in your dorm and twiddle your thumbs, but I wanted to go to every Central Asian country that I could from the former Soviet Union, so I visited most of the stands except Turkmenistan. So at that time, my Russian was much better. I've, I've lost most of it for now. So uh, you did an exchange program while you were in college, or was that fellowship like for immediate graduates or one where Yeah, immediate graduate. 2011 okay. to 2012. Okay. So you come out of college. Was it a similar sort of situation where with the Oberlin where you applied to one place was like, you know, you get out of college, you see this fellowship, you go straight into it. At that point, you didn't know if you would keep living in China from the sound of it, right? Yeah, I wasn't sure because, you know, everything was just a gray area in China. Everybody, almost every other foreigner you'd run into was even people who'd been there for a decade didn't seem to be working on a proper visa. And I knew that I really wanted to go and I wanted to do something journalism related, but I wasn't sure what how to get there. And so in my last semester of the Beijing Normal Fellowship, I kind of dilly-dallied around and looked at a few opportunities. You know, nothing at, at the time was sort of that attractive, and I knew that it was pretty easy to just walk into the door of state media and get hired as a recent uh, graduate, but I, I, that wasn't for me. I just couldn't work in anything. State media, it was just pure propaganda. I mean, if you're interested in it from the sort of experience and plan to write about write heavily about it or research it, then I guess that's for you, but really couldn't I couldn't go into that path. So actually, after my fellowship ended, I went traveling for about a month and then came back to the States and was there and got a business visa with the help of a friend and came back. And I somehow walked into the doors of the Reuters office in Beijing and asked if they had any internships. And eventually they came back and said that they did in the TV department, which is where I really wanted to work. Okay. And yeah, that's the business visa, the, the three months. A lot of people were on those visas where you'd have to leave every three months. And yeah, yes. some people would do it for years. It was insanity. Like uh, one, a good friend of mine, like he'd, you know, sometimes he'd leave the bar at midnight, go get on a plane to Shenzhen, walk across the border, walk back, fly back. And in the morning, he'd already be back. It was 
<laughs> insanity. Um, I, I did something like that actually in in 2013 in, when I first started interning at Reuters. But I knew that my visa was gonna, or I needed to leave the country within I think a couple of days. And you know things were pretty busy, especially at that time. I think, and I finally got a chance to take a flight to this really bizarre border town called Ehrenhaut in Mongolia. And it's Arian Hauta in Chinese. Uh, it's it's really bizarre because it's sort of you know it's like many border towns and in any other place there's mongolian signs everywhere but the chinese there all all if every time they see a foreigner they just want to speak mongolian to you no matter where you come from or what you look like um because <laughs> it's their only encounter with anything foreign so i went over there and then flew over stayed overnight at some bizarre hotel and uh, took a mad max like jeep because only mongolian jeeps could go on to the other side we're on the edge of the desert in the gobi <laughs> and on the chinese side it's it's like completely built up and it's full of jeep dealers and um, statues of brontosauruses or apatosauruses yeah. statues of dinosaurs and um, you get to the mongolian side and it's just like you know some plywood and you know, remnants of, of a few pillars of, of arrested development and everything like that but i literally crossed over and almost forgot to get my passport stamped on the way out <laughs> and got back in a jeep uh, crossed on over and flew back to beijing and interviewed uh, jackie chan within the same day so that was pretty interesting. <laughs> so you were you were still an intern and you were interviewing Jackie Chan. I know. I thought, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> so Jackie, true. tell me what it was like to be in Mulan. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how, how long were you an intern at Reuters for? Yeah, a little a little bit over a year. I think uh, about it as the um, trainee program that you came on. So, I mean, oh. it was a little bit looser back then, I think. I mean, I don't even think they take foreign interns anymore. They uh, don't. I was very lucky. I was sort of in, in the last batch of them that came in. But I was lucky that they ended up accrediting me. I think the forces that be at May, things just kind of worked out. You know, not all people would get accredited in that sort of situation. Uh, so I got an actual legit visa and here I am today. Right. So you've been there now how long? Say accredited for about six, almost six years. Wow. And yeah. uh, before we get into some specific stories, how has it changed over that six or I guess seven, if you include all the time interning, both in China and in the, the way people are covering China? Well, at that time when I started, everything was like human rights trials. Some dissident you've never heard of is getting locked up. Some intellectual or professor and, and or someone who wrote a manifesto and they weren't really Liu Xiaobo type characters. I mean, he was a fairly impressive figure and um, internationally speaking, already won a Nobel Prize. Daily coverage was about some dissident or some professor who had been forced out of his post and it was a lot more or petitioners and and you know surrounding some building and everything like that i think the world was still getting it's trying to get its head around china stories and a lot of the attention came to those sort of issues you know they happen i'd hate to say this but i think that everyone was getting weary of them and they happen all the time and well all the people i think who could have been put on trial right now have all been locked up or under uh, you know enough duress that they won't bother speaking again and and certainly most trials that they hold these days for distance are um, held in a much more low-key manner with with um, state appointed lawyers whereas in the past we'd all be chasing after the lawyers and everything until the early hours of the night there was a lot more attention I think on these issues back then but I think because of you know a, a mix of, of issues related to just general interest in these subjects and then actual access you know things have really shifted from that kind of story uh, a political and human rights, I think, oriented story to now it's about you know, economy and, and, you know, with the U.S.-China trade war, I think there's a lot more focus on China's economy and, and trade than there was in the past. The world's number two economic superpower and the, the strongest in Asia. Right. Yeah, I would say, I mean, it's a lot of the economy stories. It's a lot of the, the one through line is like the weird China stories that people never get sick of. Like, look at this weird thing going on in China. China. The other day on a phone call, like people were talking about, oh, this example of a feature story about Chinese people who are working the 996, the like 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. And I was like, we were we were writing about that back when I left China and like... <laughs> 
But <laughs> something about it, like people only skim the surface with China news that I feel like, you know, there's always interest in weird China type of stories or your dog breeding video about the Pekingese or, you know, weird stuff like that. And yeah, I would yeah. say the, the, the share of uh, human rights coverage has shrunk. Yeah. Uh, still in the mix in there somewhere. It's still um, in the mix in there, but I think it's just, it's a mix of access and, and people, are, I think, are, are pretty used to it. They're really, in terms of actual, like, a united dissident movement in China, I don't think there was very much of one at all. It was always very fractured, and it was just kind of a day-to-day thing of, you know, someone was being locked up. And at the time, in 2014, there was a new citizens movement. Mainly, I think they were a group of intellectuals, and some of them active. I mean, I guess most of them were activists who were being locked up for being a little bit too vocal. But the one thing that they said that really frightened authorities enough to lock them up was that they wanted their authorities to expose all their assets and and bank accounts and things like that. But they they were all uh, quickly shut up. Right. One other thing I wanted to ask is because it sounds like you'd mostly been doing newspaper stuff. You'd done like one, uh, you know, documentary that I guess learned the basics of shooting and editing. But it sounds like you went into the video department and you didn't really know that much about video news. Was it that different? Did you pick up on it really quick? How, how did that go, that transition? Yeah, it was pretty different. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd done a couple of internships that were related to sort of video news, but more like production. So. I knew some of the concepts and the style, but I really was trained from the ground up when I came to Reuters. Yeah, I think thanks to the patience of my colleagues, I was able to learn everything that um, I have today. But yeah, I really went in with kind of a blank mind and was able to study as, as much as I could. And I didn't really know how to properly use any of the cameras and the editing software that we had then and we still have today as well. So... One of the things you keep talking about is access, and the, the what you mean by that with the the human rights stories and the access is as a video reporter, you know, you need somebody you can put on camera to, to talk about certain things, and in some cases, like these human rights cases, there's literally no one you can put on camera because uh, people are too afraid to talk or various reasons. You know, you said back in the day you would put the the human rights lawyer on, but now even those have been replaced by state appointed lawyers. So I imagine that, I mean, can you just talk a little bit about that challenge and how you work in China when it's often difficult to get people to to talk to you? Well, when it's a high profile case, it's probably almost impossible to get very much or all the elements of of a visual story in that sort of situation. Because um, aside from, I think, phone calls from uh, the family members, they are very reticent to appear on camera. But actually, you know, when you're outside of Beijing and you're in more underdeveloped parts of the country where things are a little bit more uh, a little bit messier and a little bit more corrupt and and disorganized it's a lot easier to do much more in-depth stories or beijing is really not in terms of access i'll use that word again but it isn't the most ideal uh, standard to do something that you could call a more in-depth feature right yeah i remember even when they were you know overhauling the the hutongs um, which are the small alleyways in beijing that are kind of do we're filled with kind of disorganized shops and kicking out, you know, migrants um, who had come from other places in China. Yeah. Like, I remember you even trying to talk to people about that and it being not that easy to get anybody to, to go on record about the what's, you know, uh, in all honesty, a fairly local story and you wouldn't think would be that controversial. Yeah, I mean, it's all there's always something sensitive, I think, going on in Beijing. It's it's a touchy place. As you get further and further to the outskirts, of course, it's a little bit easier to speak to people. But um, outside of Beijing, it's much easier to do stories. Sometimes when people see a foreigner with a camera, it's like their worst nightmare. It's probably the last person who they would want to talk to within Beijing and other big cities in China. Um, One reason why I love going to smaller places, and especially in the countryside, is because it's easier to speak to people, and it's also a lot more beautiful from a cinematography kind of perspective. Sure, that makes sense. Uh, Let's let's get into a couple of stories. Tell tell me about a story 
story you did and kind of explain what it was about and walk me through from start to finish how you went about doing it. I think that I've done a few stories on the poverty relief campaign here, and my favorite of which was a story that I did about this little county in in, uh, Shanxi province, which is just west of Beijing. And it's a place that's mostly known for its coal, but it also has a very interesting sort of cultural aspect to it is that um, there's still a lot of people who live in these subterranean dwellings, like literally carved into the side of mountains out of caves, some of them. They, they call them in Chinese, yaodong, and it just literally means cave or cave dwelling. And mm-hmm. there was a county there, or a few of them actually, that had been sort of trying to get these people to move out of the caves, out of, off their land, and just put them into brand new uh, public apartment buildings, which are literally just sort of Soviet-style five-four blocks, with I guess they're about five to six floors each, and uh, sort of count them as as being alleviated from poverty on sort of some sort of quota. And one way that I do stories in China is that I look at official media reports. And if something sounds particularly weird and exaggerated, then I'm, I'm quite interested and intrigued. And, and sometimes I really want to go and sort of investigate exactly what part of China they're reporting about, how accurately sure. this reflects the opposite of the situation. Because often it does, you know, the reality is actually the opposite that's being reported. I think I found a report from Xinhua, which was about how some grandpa who'd lived in a cave for his entire life, all 90 years, was thrilled to death to get a new <laughs> public apartment building. And I thought, that just sounds bizarre because he's losing all of his land. And so yeah. I went there and I interviewed people who live in caves and they're like, oh my God, I never want to be in an apartment. So they're cold. Um, they don't have any electricity right now. You have to pay for all the renovations. Um, you have to have money to live there. We're going to be away from our land. They're like terrified of this thing. You know, I, I eventually found someone who signed out of the government for his apartment. And I think originally they wanted to entice him and give him a TV and a fully furbished and renovated place. But actually, apparently on the second day, they changed the contract and then he just ended up with sort of a concrete shell with wires sticking out of it and everything. And I went into to visit a few of the complexes that they built that they planned to move people into from their cave homes. And uh, apparently this guy wanted to move in, but none of his family members did. And most of them are too sick to live there because there's no elevators. The old people don't want to walk up five floors. Sure. And yeah, it was um, it was a fairly sort of China-style quota-type top-down communist policy. And um, anyway, I did that as, as sort of a story about a, a, the poverty relief campaign on a local level. So. Where <clears throat> it was in Shanxi, how how just for people listening, how far was it from Beijing? Uh, it's uh, it's not too easy to get to this particular county, so I think that you could take a high speed to the capital of Taiyuan and a, a few smaller trains out. So it it's about six to seven hours, I'd say. Sure, and get out there. I mean, I mean, you were able to find it just from reading the paper. It was pretty easy to, yeah. to identify. And uh, and you show up there. So how do you know where to go and what to do when you show up? Do you make your way straight to the caves and knock on doors, or how did it go? Well, well in, in China, when you're a reporter here, especially as a, a visual reporter and, and a Caucasian dude with stubble, well, your time is limited whenever you're in any place. If, if you're too, um, I think if you're a little bit too loud and you stay out in the open too much, then you'll get easily noticed by the authorities and picked up and kicked out, everything like that. And it'll ruin your entire you know, reporting trip and all efforts that you put into it. The moment I went in there, I immediately found a, a former, I think he was a former coal miner who had an unregistered uh, taxi. Uh-huh. And I just hired him as my driver because he was from the area that I wanted to go to. And I just told him, like, can we find uh, I told him that I was a journalist, a video journalist. I was interested in the people that lived in the caves. And I said, can we go to the caves and, and speak to people in these villages? And he's like, sure. And these people didn't really understand proper Mandarin, but he could sort of serve as a translator for me for their local dialect as well. Uh-huh. So we drove around and I usually try to find a local driver when I'm doing a story like this, because, of course, they maybe they don't understand what you want to film, but 
they know the area where you want to go and they speak the local dialect. And that's very important as well um, when you're communicating with people in a village level. So I found the people in the caves and then I asked them and, you know, just showed up in random spots of this of this massive county. It's just we spent hours and hours driving there to try to find these apartment buildings that the government had built. But it wasn't very difficult to find them or people who were living out right outside of them as well. It was not uh, too difficult. I tried to reach the local government at that point, but there was no pickup. And eventually when I did, they just hung up the phone. <laughs> I mean, so. that's that's usually the better of the, the multiple options because it's, <laughs> one, one, they ignore you, two, they harass you. And three, they cooperate and talk to you. And I feel like three is the rarest of the situation. Three is the, yeah, the lucky, the luckiest of the rarest of examples. So they never but, harassed you on that story or anything? No, I was able to get away harassment free, which almost never happens. So that went fairly smoothly in comparison to a lot of stories that I do outside of uh, the capital. But it's very easy to kind of pick up attention. People talk. And I think that in some areas, I, I remember I experienced this in one situation, but people would get rewards for reporting on foreign entities or what they what they perceive as spies. So as a foreign cameraman for a news agency, I'm perceived as a spy. <laughs> and uh, so in a normal democratic country. I guess I shouldn't say it's normal anymore. I don't know that uh, that's even the majority of countries. Uh, but in a democratic country, you roll up to uh, caves like this. You know, people don't want to be moved. You know, they'll readily complain about the government. They want to get their voice out there and all that. But in this situation, I mean, were people, did they want to complain in that way? Or were people still very cautious? Or were a lot of people refusing to talk to you? Yeah, actually, people were pretty vocal about it. They were uh, very far from any sort of civilization. It was a couple hours drive. To, it was about, a, it wasn't too far away. I think it was about an hour drive to get to this county and a little bit longer to these caves. But they were, people were fairly vocal about it, but they're old people without very, very much at all to lose, you know. So they seem perfectly happy about it. Sure. I guess if you're old and living in a cave, the government doesn't have that much to threaten you with. Um, yeah. But finding residents in the apartments was a little bit difficult. You know, I found a few people who had, who could afford to move into them because they um, were either truck drivers or they recently opened up their own specially good shop or something like that. Entrepreneurs mainly. But uh, people who were truly, you know, impoverished and left felt left out were all willing to speak about it. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah, that, that's an interesting story. I remember that story. I was still in China at the time. So what what's, uh, what would be another story that you would talk about? Probably my story on China's first pet cloning company. <laughs> I don't know that I remember this one. You'll have to tell me for all about it. So I've done a lot of uh, one reason why this is a very interesting position here in Beijing is because I've been able to cover any sort, every sort of uh, natural disaster and, and breaking news um, uh, that I guess imaginable in this region. And um, it's been a really fascinating ride. And, and I've been on a lot of big stories like the 2015 uh, Nepal earthquake. But otherwise, I've, I really love these kind of feature stories that I've been able to do in China because, you know, you can't really film these stories anywhere else in the world and it's very difficult to get access here so even if you do get access and film what you may think is a beautiful story or something that's very interesting very few people will actually look at it but this was pretty interesting and it took a while for me to build up the contacts and, and be able to have access but basically uh, there's a, a, a pet cloning company in China called Sinogene and 2016 they I think they successfully cloned uh two beagle twins uh, with a, a genetic defect that they wanted to use for research. And that's was like, that's kind of interesting. They were so proud about cloning these two, these uh, beagle twins with genetic defects um, <laughs> for the purposes of research. So I went to their office, spoke to their 
CEO and and a few other people in the company and asked if I could do this because they wanted to start out this new cloning business. And I said, well, is it possible that we could follow one of your clients? And um, they seemed kind of uh, interested in the idea. And so eventually they introduced me to one of their clients and I spoke with them. And this guy was an animal trainer and he wanted to clone his star pet dog named uh, Juice, and <laughs> who is a uh, stray dog who was you know, spayed at an early age and was unable to reproduce, but, you know, was, is sort of the Benji of, of Chinese movie dogs. <laughs> sure. And it was just the most, it was the most bizarre thing. And, it, you know, I, fo- I followed uh, this whole process of cloning from the sampling of genes taken from the original juice all the way to the birth of this dog. And we finally fall. I think the last shoot that I had with the clone juice was when it was about three months old. But it really, uh, from news, a news perspective, really showed how quickly this industry was developing in China and the whole sort of cloning industry, except for, you know, bans on tampering with human embryos and, and cloning of humans. I guess that that law was clearly broken in Shenzhen not too long ago. But right, um, yeah. Aside from aside from a clear cut sort of regulations on that, it's like many fast growing industries in China is that it's not particularly regulated and developing very very quickly. And it was a really fascinating kind of story because we had excellent access. The owner of Juice and the Clone Juice was talking about how you wanted to make Clone Juice even better than Juice. You wanted to make a 2.0 <laughs> Juice and an uh-huh. even better actor. And it was, it's, uh, he was already starting to train the dog as, as a show dog from, uh-huh. you know, just two months old. That's, uh, <laughs> Glow in the dark juice. Glow, I don't know. I don't know if they're at that level of right. Um, it's it. Well, maybe it is because they wanted to offer this place wanted to offer um, gene editing services so that you can go in and edit the genes of your favorite poodle and it can come off with you know even curlier and, and fluffier hair of some sort. But I think that company recently made the news again when they cloned a uh, police dog. So I guess that's that's <laughs> I guess uh, suitable for for the environment and the world's largest police state. Yeah, um, I, I, I saw the police dog story. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I can't what even the... tell you how. Like it's Because these days I don't read too much into the China Reuters coverage. It has to make the front page for me to read it. So that means a, <laughs> a story about a clone police dog made the front page. So go figure. Okay. And then um, I, I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but uh, I thought it might be interesting if you are willing to talk about it, but just if you have any stories about dealing with thugs or any general advice for people dealing with thugs in China, because I feel like you've had vast experience dealing with <laughs> harassment there. Um, I yes. don't know if there's any takeaway from that. Wonderful place. Well, I, I, they, in China, when you deal with thugs, it, it's usually sometimes they work directly for state security, but often they're just you know, locally hired outsourced thugs hired by the local government. Sometimes these same guys are are the sort of dudes that are used to uh, get villagers out of their dwellings so that, you know, new developments can pop out in, on the same land and during land grab issues. But often these guys will end up following you around. And some of them are just straight out, you know, just gangster goons. And they're kind of easy to talk with if you follow the MBA. That's something <laughs> that I realized doing a lot of these stories, like I when Liu Xiaobo died, I had to, you know, as a video journalist, I had to go and stake out around the hospital where he was ailing. And, you know, these guys would be assigned to us. But for some reason, I ended up with like six of them personally. <laughs> but they, they weren't necessarily the most professional of, of dudes because they would talk about their experiences doing, you know, football game security and, and everything like that. And they were just kind of, a lot of them were your run of the mill thugs. But they all were, were avid sports fans, especially for NBA. And I'd say that I'm from Indiana, and they'd tell me all the scores and the stats of the Pacers the past season. <laughs> they knew way more than me, or in, and probably most of my friends actually in, in, in Indiana. So I think that's a really good tactic to have. Is you should be able to talk about the NBA. I think, if, especially you're from the U.S., but it just seems to be a uniting factor. I've been in villages in, in northwestern China and just chatting with local cab drivers about the NBA. Everybody just seems to follow the scores and stats. But I think in, in 
interesting thing about thugs here and, and local goon squads is that they're hired to annoy you and harass you and follow you around, but they won't always intervene physically. They probably will with your interviewees, depending on what they'll say, but sometimes they just act to intimidate you so that you're discouraged from doing any reporting at all and will just follow your every move, such as following you into a bathroom stall and watch you as you urinate. <laughs> Has that happened to you? All the time. <laughs> Even off and in Beijing, too. Yeah. Wow. And uh, I, I mean, if you really like make nasty or lewd comments at them and insult them, it'll just make things worse. But if you kind of try to find some sort of middle ground um, with them, then it's easier to deal with them. And, and sometimes, very rarely, you can negotiate some sort of access. Um, but it's only been a few instances where I've been kind of physically manhandled and punched and kicked. And uh, they try to grab my, uh, destroy my camera. And I'm lucky to get out with uh, not having a, a camera destroyed. I've, I've heard about much more serious uh, situations uh, from other folks, but it's it's never come to that sort of level for me. I think probably because I've been able to protect my camera quick enough, but it really depends on what level of thugs that you're dealing with. Uh, sometimes it could just go under the nose of local authorities, especially when we're in towns that rely on, on a specific type of industry, such as steel towns and you know, coal mining towns. Uh, a lot of the time, you know, the actual public security or police have very little power in terms of uh, in law enforcement and, and governance and um, everything is sort of in the hands of these factories the um, people who control the oversee manage these industries so uh, you'll be dealing with probably uh, not the top of the line thugs when you're in places like this sure that's uh, that's funny about the NBA you're not even a particularly a sports fan fan, if I recall. No, I like to play sports, but I am uh, I really don't watch that much. Actually, after a few experiences here, I just started watching the NBA, I, just for general knowledge, I think. It comes in handy here. Sure. Um, I'm more of a baseball what? fan, but... And somehow found myself in China. Gotcha. One thing I was going to ask, just because people always suggest questions to me, they're not always good. Um, but I'll try <laughs> this one out out on you. Who knows? Maybe it'll elicit an interesting answer. But what do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? Well, I think right now, experience. I'm just lucky to have the experiences that I have had here in Asia. I've been to every single region, including Oceania, Oceania and, and the Western Pacific, even for this job. And I've covered such a diverse multitude of stories. Uh, being in a news agency, sometimes it's just grab and go. You do as much as you can, but you can't get because you're on limited time sometimes working as a one-man band, as a video journalist, and you can't get as in-depth as you would like for some features. But I'm quite lucky to have covered the sort of range of stories that I have. And I think about friends of mine who are, you know, working at local newspapers and back home and, you know, they have a lot more time, of course. I mean, they're being, in a, a, being a text reporter is a lot different as, as well. I mean, they rarely even get to travel, I think, and I'm constantly traveling with this job. And right. That's a good segue to wrap up this portion of the interview by talking a little bit about uh, what uh, what you're doing next, because by, by, by the time this airs, you'll already be in a new job, right? Yeah, I will be going to Singapore and basing there in our this is our Asia Reuters Asia hub as a video editor slash uh, breaking news video journalist. So I will be doing what's called the fireman, which is when breaking news hits, whether it's a disaster or, you know, the murder of one of Kim Jong-un's brothers, you name it. Um, I would be one of the first to be on the ground and then I would be doing some of the first stories and setting up the infrastructure and planning a lot of the coverage as well and uh, just uh, getting to hit the ground running. But I've done that actually a lot already, um, not in, in that central kind of role, but I've been lucky, fortunate enough enough to be part of the first teams to cover a lot of these breaking news stories. Anyway, that's uh, pretty much what I'm going to be doing next. So I'll be constantly the man on call. Right. So you'll be based in Singapore and they'll fly you to wherever the big story is, whether it's a Nepal earthquake or um, would they fly you all the way to New Zealand for like some of these attacks and stuff? I mean, they'd send you anywhere. Yeah. They don't have a video person based, I assume. Exactly. Which is I, places. Yeah, I, I did go to New Zealand that as well in Christchurch. Yeah, so I was there for almost two weeks. Um, but I mean, I, aside from that, I'll also be doing a lot of stuff from, from the desk and editing 
side, which is something, a, a duty that I do in Beijing as well, desk producing, but I'm often out in the field here. I think this, in being in Beijing, we have a bigger bureau and all the coverage from greater China, Hong Kong and Taiwan all sort of has to go through us as well. So it's been a, a, a good opportunity to do sort of different aspects of the job. Right. Yeah. I realize now I completely forgot to even touch on the fact that we used to work together for two years in Beijing. I don't know that there's all that much to say about it. I mean, we're obviously friends from that. I don't know if they forced you to cover any auto shows or anything with me, maybe at some point or another. Yes, but, we, did, uh, we did cover two of them together. I think we did more interviews together on one of them. But yeah, those were also very grab and go. You know, you would run from one station to the other. Yeah, I think I remember the one we did more because the the first one, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, but yeah, by the second one, I remember we did it. We were like interviewing the China head of Cadillac and like these different companies. I'd kind of figured it out just in time to leave for Brazil. So that is basically the the more biographical part and then the rest is what i call the lightning round so uh, you know the, the questions are a little bit more brief you don't have to get that into them feel free to expand or not as much as you like um, sure do you feel ready no i'm all ready let's go lightning round here we go first oh, question wow. you wake up in the morning and you get your phone or your computer what is the first thing you check very first thing if i want to look at news you know i'd check my email of course very first thing um, oh. but what would be my first source of news sure on my phone of course it'll have alerts but i think the most reliable especially from the perspective of news that um, i'm looking after is uh, the bbc not always china related because we often have to chase official response to international stories i think the bbc has a pretty good ranking on their app for what is sort of the top news going on at that time of course i uh, check reuters our news website and app and i think the bbc accurately shows us a, a broad Broadcaster, the sort of stuff we should be looking at, but not in terms of China news. If you know we're looking at China news, I check usually a few. Uh, well, if you're looking for a, a Chinese app, I'd probably check. Well, it's technically Hong Kongese, but Now TV. Okay. Yeah, their China page and Phoenix TV, which is technically also Hong Kong based, but pretty uh, you know mainland centered Hong Kong news app. And then, uh, what would be a publication you read or listen to or watch purely for fun? You can just. Pure out of personal interest yeah but i'm just killing time by the economist yeah. i mean they address every i think sort of global issue and offer up an interesting perspective something i wouldn't have always thought of but they have some nice pieces i don't always agree with them but i think it's a pretty good publication and i uh, look at the app almost daily until i'm done with this week's issue cool yeah it's been a while since i've read the economist but it's a good publication good for airplane rides yes um, airplane <laughs> edition yeah and then what would you say is the best article piece of journalism, what have you, could be video, could be text that you've consumed lately? I can offer up two. I think, well, can it be a, a book, actually? Sure. Yeah. There's a there's a book I'm reading on, on the Nepali Civil War written by a, a famous Nepali journalist, Prashant Jha, and um, it's called The Battles of the New Republic. And it just sort of details how the conflict began and ended and, and how the Maoists and royalists have sort of been integrated back into society. I think that's one of them. And another publication is actually a podcast that I've really gotten addicted to in the past month, which is um, started a while back, but it's called Crime Town. Maybe this is oh. going back to my fascination with goons, um, <laughs> but it's a, a serial documentary podcast hosted by, I think it's Max Merling and Zach Pontier. And it's just about a really corrupt town in New Jersey where a, a mafioso, I guess he's, he's formerly actually a, a a lower level official becomes the mayor and everyone's happy and they love him. And, <laughs> and they, they go around, they interview goons. Half of it is just interviews with goons. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to check that out. Not heard of it. Okay. And then is there any particular subject matter you read into that isn't related to your job directly? You mean in, in terms of journalism, you know, like what? It could be anything. If article really I'm looking for. Reading into music, reading about music or reading about, I don't know, the Pacers, what have you. The Pacers or what have I. I read a lot about film, I think. Okay. International film, because um, it's always been a hobby of mine. And yeah, I, I think that I there's still, a, I have a bit of an awe factor for it. And history, of course. I mean, I most of the books I consume are 
history related, but you know, history and sociology, I think, from those perspectives. But if I, I think other types of journalism that you're talking about, video game reviews. <laughs> <laughs> Only recently, yeah. Uh-huh. Let's see. And then is Twitter important to you? Twitter is important to me to monitor, but personally, I almost never post anything on it. Forgive me, or listeners, please forgive me, but I find it a real echo chamber. And uh, I think that now in journalism, we're kind of reaching this sort of a me age where everything important that you publish has to be reflected by, you know, your Twitter account and how many followers you get. Otherwise, you won't really get noticed. Remain under the the radar. So I I kind of refrain from really... I'm also very cautious about anything that I put on Twitter, but it's very useful for monitoring uh, news, especially China-related news. It's easier to get in touch with, especially distant circles and interviewees uh, to a certain point with Twitter. Right, because if they've made the effort to get on a VPN, to get on Twitter, they're probably already have thought about what they're doing. Um, Yeah. Okay. And then do you use any other social media and how? Not really. I mean, I have Facebook and I occasionally just post articles from my friends there that I've done recently. But yeah, I rarely use uh, very much social media aside from, you know, monitoring with Twitter. I can't think of, but there's Twitter, there's there's Facebook. What else? Instagram. What am I missing? Oh, yes. Instagram. Sorry. Yeah, I, I use Instagram quite a bit, but not for, I think, a journalistic perspective. That's kind of just something fun where you can you can see some really pretty pictures by people in your industry, but I've never seen it as a valid news monitoring tool. Sure, yeah. It can just be yeah, for fun. Just for um, fun. But I, I use that a lot, yeah. Mainly to the, just post sort of quirky things I see in China day to day and disturbing photos of dogs <laughs> that, I, that I see on the street. Do you post a WeChat moments or no? Um, not that much these days. I used to post just quirky stuff there and it, it's kind of like the same way that I use Instagram. I think I would post more articles on WeChat and, and sort of test the waters sometimes to see how sens- the sensitivity range, I think, for WeChat, but not that much. Okay. The next questions are yes or no questions. Interpret that as you will. All right. Uh, so the first one is Glenn Greenwald, yes or no? Glenn Greenwald. What am I thinking? What's wrong with me? Who's Glenn Greenwald? <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's the best answer I've had so far. Do you, do you want do you want a hint? Um let me think. Wait. Oh, yes. He's the Guardian reporter, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, he's the one who Snowden linked it to. I'm sorry. I'm a... What's wrong with me? You being in Brazil, of course, you're probably within a stroke, but... uh... No, no. But, uh, you know, someday. someday uh, I don't know. Yes. I don't know about that much about him. It could be a no comment, but I'll say yes. Sorry, okay. I'm, I'm very ignorant being in my little bubble here. That's fine. That's fine. Vice Media, yes or no? Well, I like their documentaries, so yes. <laughs> a begrudging yes. Um, begrudging yes. <laughs> don't take it always as, as the most cutting edge of journalism, if we can even associate them with them, the same frame of, of industry. Sure. And then... Uh, WikiLeaks, yes or no? Yes. Do you want to expand? You don't have to. Let my response just be yes. Uh, do you have any yes or no questions you would like to suggest for the podcast? Well, say Julian Assange, yes or no. I think that's an interesting one, more so than WikiLeaks. I guess that's true. So what do you think, Julian Assange, yes or no? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hard to get on board with his uh, behavior as a cat parent. <laughs> You know, those style choices, that cat's tie. <laughs> you dress your cat up in a tie, but you can't clean its litter box. I mean, come on, man. No, but he's, you know, go quietly. He's he's like behaving like he's G- Jesus Christ about to get crucified up there. The crucifixion yeah. part might not be wrong. <laughs> yeah, the crucifixion part, probably. That's not inaccurate. But yeah, he's quite a character. Okay. And then next up, if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? Robert Kappa. Who's that? He was a Hungarian photographer and he was quite famous for his coverage of the Spanish Civil War in World War II. You know that famous photo of, I think it's a Spanish uh, leftist soldier in white, sort of being shot and 
falling on a hilltop. He had taken that one. But he also, you know, he had a really interesting way of working is that I think he re- there were a lot of unknowns in a lot of the work that he did. He didn't know if he'd just show up and would be gunned down. And I think one of my favorite stories of him is that he parachuted in with the U.S. forces on D-Day and he didn't even know how to use a parachute and lied that he did. <laughs> yeah, he was an amazing photographer and, and had a crazy life. And of course, not everything. According to his social circle and those who knew him, not everything he said was was true. And some people accused him of fabricating some of his photos. But he certainly lived during interesting times and lived a, a very interesting life. <laughs> yeah, that sounds cool. And uh, yeah, I guess that the literal parachute journalist. I wonder when that term first was invented. Good Ben from them. Who knows? Let's see. What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? Don't sweat the small stuff. Keep your head down, work hard, and you'll get out of Crawfordsville. Right. And then what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? Kind of hard. I guess I really like um, Ace in the Hole. It's an old 1950s noir film about this hyper-masculine washed-out former New York Times reporter who <laughs> he's an alcoholic and he shows up at this small-town newspaper office in, I think, Phoenix, Arizona, or a smaller town in you know, Arizona, and he tells their editor-in-chief that it's, it's played by Kirk Douglas, by the way, with his chiseled jaw. And he tells the uh, editor-in-chief that he can make their paper a, a, a $1,000 a day paper or something like that. And then he ends up finding a story about a coal miner that's stuck in a mine. And literally a media circus pops up and this uh, Kirk Douglas character um, starts manipulating um, the media and even the search and rescue operations so that he can just keep it going for as long as possible until I'll give the ending away but the guy dies uh, you know, there's no one else to blame except for Kirk Douglas's character you know it's, it doesn't reflect the actual principles of journalists but I just think it's a great film sounds great I'll have to check that out I like noir movies um, and I've, I, I've not heard of that one what was it called again Ace in the Hole cool and then qualifications aside if you couldn't be a journalist what job would you do probably either a comic book artist or a, a filmmaker probably cinematographer cool okay I think that's uh, all my questions then That was my conversation with Joe Campbell, a video journalist with Reuters. I hope you liked it. I'll post links to some of the things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you could also write a positive review. It helps get the podcast more attention in Apple Podcasts and other apps. You can find us on Twitter at at @foreignpod or tweet about us with hashtag foreignpod. And above all, if you know someone interested in journalism, news, or whatever it is we talk about on this podcast, recommend the podcast to a friend. Personal recommendations go the furthest. Our show's music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, July 28th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Correspondence.